So we're in our message series today on the life of Jesus. And this is a message series where we're going through the whole life of Jesus. Everything he said, everything he taught, everything he did. Because we want to know who Jesus really was for ourselves. We want to see it in the word for ourselves. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the Bible known as the Gospels. These four Gospels are made up of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were three disciples who lived with Jesus, traveled with him as he ministered and learned directly from him. Luke was a physician and a historian, a contemporary at the same time, who investigated the life of Jesus and wrote his gospel as a historical document, a record of the life of Jesus. And so today we're going to be in the gospel of Matthew. If you want to turn there, it's the very, very first book in the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, and we always say this, you don't have to agree with everything I say today, but you do have to care and take it seriously. So what I mean by that is if you disagree or you think something doesn't sound right, you have to actually take the initiative to study it for yourself and to see what the text actually says and investigate the claims. That's what it means to take truth seriously, to not form our opinions based on our emotions, but to be sincere in our pursuit of the truth because there's nothing more important than knowing the truth, absolutely nothing. We believe Jesus is the truth, came to tell us the truth and came to show us how to walk and live in the light of the truth. Last week we witnessed an incredible interaction between Jesus and a rich young politician and we were reminded that Jesus only ever asks us to give up things and relationships that are in reality holding us back and keeping us from being truly free. Everything that the Lord asks of us is ultimately for our benefit. And today, Jesus is going to simply continue the conversation with his disciples about the interaction he just had with the rich young ruler in the previous chapter, Matthew 19. So they had this discussion, and then Jesus got alone with his disciples to sort of debrief the interaction. They had some questions. They wanted to understand what Jesus had told this rich young ruler in greater detail, and they were perplexed because in the culture and faith that the disciples were raised in, Money and wealth was considered an indicator of God's blessing. The the more you had, the more God liked you. And so when Jesus says it is easier for a camel to make it through the eye of a needle than for someone who trusts in money to make it into the kingdom of God, they're astounded. They're perplexed and they're thinking, well, if a rich person who's clearly blessed by God has a hard time getting into heaven, what chance do we have? And so what Jesus is doing here is continuing to teach his disciples about how salvation works, how a person is saved, how a person actually gets to heaven, how they get forgiven by God and brought into the family of God. He's trying to teach them and show them that God's forgiveness is a gift. It's not something you can earn. And I also believe Jesus is sharing this particular parable we're going to read today to get the disciples prepared as best he can for the reality that they don't know is coming, that Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of non-Jews are soon going to make up the majority of the church. All of the disciples were Jewish, and like all Jews at the time, they believed we are God's chosen people and we are God's only chosen people. And Jesus knew that something dramatic was going to change about the kingdom of God after his death and resurrection. The church will be birthed in the book of Acts in chapter two. 
And we're going to see the disciples in the book of Acts struggling with the reality that Israel has been God's chosen people for a few thousand years and suddenly there's all these non-Israelis, these non-Jews, these Gentiles flooding into the church. And this is going to cause tension and jealousy and to be very honest, pettiness in many Jews, including the disciples. And so we're going to see them do all kinds of things like say, well, well, yeah, you don't need to be a Jew to be in the church, but it would still be good if you would try to be as Jewish as possible. And they'll push things like circumcision, saying that you should still do that for religious reasons. And it's something that has to be confronted and dealt with by people like the Apostle Paul. God has to send him to confront some of the other apostles like Peter and tell them, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're not saved by doing any of these rituals. What's going on? And as I always like to mention, it it always cracks me up because I think, who was the poor guy who was the last guy to get circumcised for religious reasons before they changed the policy? There was somebody who, when Peter stood up and said, listen, I've been confronted by my brother Paul. He's a valuable brother in the Lord, and he has opened my eyes to the fact that We don't need to be doing ceremonial circumcision. And somewhere in that room was a guy sitting in the back with a bag of frozen peas on his lap going, come on, are you kidding me? Couldn't have said this three days earlier? So there were going to be all these issues in this clash between the kingdom of God seemingly being opened up wider than it ever had before. Now, the Lord had always wanted non-Jews to be a part of his family. He had wanted Israel to exist as a missionary nation, a nation to tell people that God loved them, but instead they became inwardly focused. And at this point in history, the time of Christ, they pretty much believe that if you're not Jewish, you don't really have a shot at being in the family of God. And so Jesus is trying to prepare them for the reality that, no, listen, you, you guys wouldn't fulfill your job As my chosen people, you didn't evangelize, you weren't missionaries, so no, I'm going to open the whole thing up. I'm going to do this through my Holy Spirit instead of through the nation of Israel. So Jesus is going to try and get their minds to see things from heaven's perspective using this parable. That's the context. So let's jump in. Matthew 20, verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This was a typical scene during the harvest every year. Laborers would wait in the marketplace from before sunrise in hopes of being hired to work a 12-hour day. During the harvest season, a standard workday would be about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And what's important to note in this parable is that Jesus chooses to use a metaphor of day laborers. They were generally unskilled workers from the lowest social classes of society. These weren't craftsmen. They had no discernible skills. They dug ditches for a living. They moved dirt from one place to another. They could pull fruit off of a tree. So they're not really useful for much than the most simple and basic of tasks. And that's who Jesus uses in this metaphor. Verse 2. Now when he, the landowner, had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. The original language makes it clear that this was a negotiation between the workers and the landowner. And they settle upon payment of one denarius for the day's work. Now a denarius was a day's wage for a Roman soldier or a skilled laborer. These guys are actually being extremely well taken care of because to get a denarius is a pay above their station in life. So they've come out of this very, very well. So make a note of this. It's your first fill-in. 
the first hired workers agreed to generous compensation. They agreed to very, very generous compensation. And then we keep reading and it says, he sent them into his vineyard. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour, that would be around 9 a.m., and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. That doesn't mean they're lazy, it just means they haven't been hired yet. And so for whatever reason, he wants to increase the amount of work being done or the rate at which work is being done. Perhaps he felt rain might be coming which would ruin the harvest and so he goes to the marketplace again and finds more men waiting for employment who haven't been hired yet. Verse four, and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, underline the word right, I will give you. So they went. Well, no doubt word had spread across the marketplace that this landowner was paying very generously to hire laborers. And so having heard this, these guys don't feel the need to negotiate. They trust the proven generosity of the one hiring them, and they leave the issue of their compensation to his discretion. And they're just glad that they found work for the day. It's already three hours into the day. Verse five, again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise, that's around noon and 3 p.m., and about the 11th hour, that would be around 5 p.m., just one hour left in the workday, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, underline right, you will receive. So it's the last hour of the day, and, and these guys are just hanging at the marketplace because They're hoping for a miracle. They've got nothing better to do. They probably aren't going to eat that day if they don't bring home something. And so they're just thrilled to be hired because they thought the day was about to go to waste. Verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came who were hired about the 11th hour, those who had worked only one hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained, underline complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. We've been working out in the sun, in the hot, parching wind. But he answered one of them and said, friend, underline, I am doing you no wrong. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? You were thrilled when I offered you a denarius. Take what's yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. And then underline all of verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? That means are you angry? Are you annoyed? Are you ticked off because I'm good? You see, the owner of the vineyard isn't mistreating those who work the full day. He's simply being gracious to those who did not. He isn't wronging anyone. He's being gracious to those who don't deserve it. He's keeping his word to those he struck an agreement with at the beginning of the day, and he's exercising his right to overpay the other workers. So make a note of this, because this is the reality. The landowner was gracious to all the laborers. The landowner was gracious to all the laborers. Even those who he struck an agreement with before the day began were thrilled with their compensation and were thrilled 
to be hired. He was gracious to everybody. Then in verse 16, Jesus says, so the last will be first, and the first last. Perhaps the best way to say this is to explain that Jesus is saying everyone ends in a dead heat, regardless of where they began. And so we know that Jesus is not speaking about rewards in heaven. He's speaking about eternal life. He's speaking about salvation. And those who have followed Jesus from childhood and those who made the decision to follow him on their deathbed will be in the same heaven together forever. Don't believe me? Just ask the thief who was crucified next to Jesus. Right now he resides in the same heaven as the disciples. Despite the fact he only had a few hours left in his life when he put his faith in Jesus. He didn't even have time to get baptized. He didn't even have time to tithe. The point is God is gracious. Salvation is a gift. And so that thief is in the same heaven as the greatest saints of the Bible. Membership in the family of God is not given to those who deserve it. It's given to those who are willing to receive it. Make a note of this. The same salvation comes to all who receive it the same way, by grace. The same salvation comes to all who receive it the same way, by grace. And remember, this is all news to the disciples. They're used to thinking that good works earn a man's way to heaven. They were raised to think that you actually could fulfill all of God's laws when the true meaning of God's laws was to reveal that nobody can fulfill all of God's laws. Nobody can meet God's standard of perfection and everybody needs a savior. And so Jesus tells his disciples this parable explaining that salvation is a gift of grace. It's got nothing to do with how much or how hard we work at being good. It all comes down to the fact that our master, the Lord, is gracious and is kind. And Jesus is also preparing his disciples for the reality that, hey, even though you think of yourselves as having been here from the beginning, being Jewish, being raised in the faith, you need to know that my grace is available to the person who's on their deathbed as well. And you don't get into heaven by how much you've done. You get in because the master is gracious and the master is kind. I hope you're glad this morning over the truth that you cannot earn your salvation. Because I don't know about you, but if salvation came down to being a consistently good person, I would not make the cut. And neither would you. If you think you would, you're arrogant and you're not a good person. But thank God, we are saved by grace. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, Jesus says, but few chosen. Your joy, my joy over being brought into the kingdom, the family of God should be so great it should override. There should be no room for comparison or jealousy. No room for comparing my calling with anybody else's calling. The Lord says, reality check. I died for everyone, but not everyone will respond. Therefore, not everyone will be called. What did he tell his disciples? He said, rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life and you're saved. Rejoice that you're saved. Make a note of this, our joy 
over being in the kingdom should overpower any potential jealousy over someone else's calling. Our joy over being in the kingdom should overpower any potential jealousy over someone else's calling. Instead of looking at another believer and going, well, how come they're being so blessed? They've only been walking with the Lord for a year. How come they're being so blessed? I've been faithful for 25 years. I've been serving a church faithfully and miserably for 15 years. Every week. What's the deal? Jesus says, guys, you're saved. You're in the family of God. You've been saved from death. You should rejoice over that. You should be so happy about that that there's no room for discontent. No room for saying, well, they've only worked one hour. Don't you think the Lord should make them pay their dues a little bit before the blessings start rolling in? Your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice over that. And if you've been with us a while as we've been going through the Gospels, through the teachings and life of Jesus, then you've noticed that Jesus goes out of his way to consistently remind us, to warn us that in the kingdom of God, there's going to be a lot of surprises. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of surprises. There's going to be some people there we were not expecting. Him? For real? Her? Really? There's going to be some people missing that we were not expecting. And when rewards are given out, I think the surprises are going to be staggering because in heaven, rewards are given for faithfulness just as every person's salvation will depend on their response to the revelation they received. So too, every person's rewards will depend upon their faithfulness to the calling that they received. You're not going to be given rewards based on how you did compared to Billy Graham or the Apostle Paul. There's gonna be suburban housewives and moms receiving the same rewards as some of the greatest saints of the Old Testament Bible. Why? Because they were faithful in the calling that God put on their lives. There's gonna be insurance salesmen and seemingly ordinary dads receiving the same rewards as the early church fathers because they were faithful in the calling God put on their life. There'll be third world pastors from places you've never heard of standing next to the Apostle Paul. There'll be grandmothers who were prayer warriors being crowned and hailed as great in the kingdom of God. There's going to be some incredible, incredible surprises. Heaven will be full of wonderful surprises. So here are some things for remember. And just know Jesus is going to unpack this a little more in a moment. Write this down. Greatness in heaven will be the result of being faithful to your calling on earth. Greatness in heaven will be the result of being faithful to your calling on earth. And this should encourage those of us who look at our lives and and only see the mundane, only see the ordinary, who think, I'm I'm not doing anything extra special. I gotta do something. I gotta get on a plane and go find some people who wear leaves or something and tell them the gospel. I, I, I gotta do something. Heaven looks at our lives and he says, you have a great And a significant calling. You're called to be a father or mother. A grandfather or a grandmother. You're called to be a spouse. You're you're called to work diligently and represent me in your workplace. You're called to care about your neighbors. None of that is ordinary. None of that is insignificant. It's a calling given by God as significant as his calling to the greatest saints in the scriptures. It's a calling 
It's not where you ended up because you didn't make more daring choices for the Lord earlier in your life. It's a calling. Be faithful in and faithful to the life God has called you to and you'll be great in the kingdom of God. The most ordinary tasks become extraordinary when they are done to and for the glory of God, to honor him. In Romans 12.10, the Apostle Paul gives this instruction to the church. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor. It's on your outlines. You might want to underline in honor, giving preference, underline preference to one another. You see, I truly believe we have no idea sometimes the greatness that we're sitting next to. Chatting with after the service or even changing the diaper of in the nursery. We have no idea how great some of the most ordinary people we know are in the eyes of the Lord. We have no idea who they're gonna be in heaven. And so we would be wise men, wise women, to honor our brothers and sisters in the Lord, knowing that we will be astounded in heaven one day by who was truly great in this life. We'd be wise to remember that. And we can't miss the warning that we alluded to earlier, to watch out for jealousy. Have you noticed that it's so much easier to mourn with those who mourn than to rejoice with those who rejoice? Let's be real here. It's easy to mourn with those who mourn because something bad has happened in their life. And part of you is thinking, that's terrible, and I'm really thankful it didn't happen to me. But when something good happens... We tend to think deep down, oh, I wish that was happening to me. I just lost my job. Oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Lord, for my job. I just got a completely unexpected $5,000 bonus at work. Oh, great. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. See, our God is gracious and he's good, and he's free to be good to whomever, however he wants and he's never good to someone else at the expense of being good to you. When God is good to someone else, it's not like we can look at our lives and claim he hasn't been good to me. None of us can say that. We're like children, and I know because I've got six, we tend to think, well, what have you done for me lately? You know if you have multiple kids, you can give one of them a candy bar, and then 10 minutes later, give the other kid a candy bar, and the one who got it 10 minutes earlier is going to say, where's my candy bar? This isn't fair. This is injustice. And they've already forgotten. We need to be careful that we don't do the same thing with the Lord. Verse 15 is so convicting to me personally. I'll read it again. This is what the Lord says. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Ouch. But is the point of this parable that God is not good to some? No, 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 no. He was good to those who worked for the whole day, and he was good to those who worked for an hour. The cure for jealousy is to remember that God's been good to every single one of us. He owed us nothing, but he gave us everything. Jesus gave his life and his blood so that we could be with him in heaven and enjoy a relationship with him in this life, a relationship that brings us peace Joy, fulfillment, forgiveness, purpose, and everything else we need. God has been so good to every single one of us. Every single one. May we rejoice in the glorious truth. Write this down. Grace is not fair. 
Grace is not fair. And that's the whole point. Grace is not fair. And may we be people who do not take God's grace in someone else's life as a reason for jealousy, but rather as a reminder of the undeserved kindness we too have received from the Master. You know, I enjoy sports and I grew up watching them a lot on TV. And when you grow up that way, you get a very distorted view of what old is, right? When you're watching sports, you'll hear commentators say things like, look at him go, still getting it done at age 33. Or you can see the urgency in his eyes. At 34, he knows he doesn't have many opportunities left. You watch sports growing up and you come to the idea of like, what happens when they get to 40? Do they take him behind the stadium and shoot them? There's a real desperation here. He's really desperate. At 37, he's already defying father time. Wow. And then I turned 34 and I realized the truth that I could absolutely still play professional sports into my 30s. Some of you guys are in your 50s and you know the truth that you could still hang with those guys. So the owner of the vineyard was still looking for workers at five o'clock, the last hour of the day. And you know why some guys got hired? Because they were still in the marketplace hoping to be hired. They hadn't given up. Write this down, because it's true. It's never too late to get serious about living for Jesus. It's never too late to get serious about living for Jesus. No matter how much you've messed up, no matter your age, no matter how many years you've wasted, God has a place and a plan in his story and his kingdom for anyone who will say today, just get me out there. I just want to be used by you, God. The Holy Spirit will begin to show you how he can use you where you are right now. He's not necessarily going to come to you and say, okay, let's get you on a plane to Cambodia but he's going to begin to open your eyes through the Holy Spirit to see, I put you in this family. I put you around these friends, these people, these coworkers, so that you could have an impact on them, so you could pray for them, so you could change the spiritual atmosphere wherever you go. God is always looking for people to use, even in the last hour of the day, the last chapter of your life. Don't ever think it's over. It's never too late to get serious about being used by the Lord. Surrender your life to Jesus. Make yourself available to him. I guarantee he will use you. I guarantee it. Just ask the thief who was on the cross beside Jesus, the thief whose story is told millions of times over every year at Easter. It's not too late for God to use you. Let's read verse 17 together. It says, now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, underline chief priests, and to the scribes, underline scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, underline Gentiles, to mock and to scourge and to, and then underline crucify. And then underline this next word, and... And the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus lays out in absolute clarity with no metaphors, no allegories. This is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. And one thing I want us to pick up on is that in just two verses, 
Jesus makes it clear that his death came at the hands of one, the Jews. He says the chief priests and the scribes. Secondly, the Gentiles. He uses that term, the non-Jews. Thirdly, the Romans, because they're the ones who ultimately crucify him. And if you know your Bible, then you know that you could add you and I to that list. For we too have all sinned. And it was our sin that necessitated Jesus dying on the cross in our place. So should you ever find yourself in a conversation over whose fault Jesus' crucifixion was, over who killed Jesus, please know that Jesus gives us the answer in verses 18 and 19. Everyone, everyone, everyone had a hand in the death of Jesus, including you and I. Write this down. It was our sin that necessitated Jesus' death on the cross. Because we sinned, along with every other person who's ever lived, Jesus had to die on the cross. It was the only way for us to be saved. This is the first time Jesus has explicitly told his disciples that he will be crucified. He's told them previously what was going to happen, that he was going to die. He's hinted at it, but now he's telling them where and how it's going to happen. And in Luke's gospel, in this same conversation, we're told a couple of things that Matthew doesn't mention. In Luke's gospel, I think I put these on your outline, he adds, all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. It's amazing. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Son of Man is a term given to Jesus during his incarnation. That means when he came to the earth to become a man, he was the son of man. All prophecies about him can't be fulfilled because he still has a second coming. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna be crucified, and I'm gonna rise again from the dead, and this is gonna fulfill everything the Old Testament prophets said about me when I would come as Messiah. We're talking over 300 unique and specific prophecies given hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born as a man on the earth. Prophecies so specific, the mathematical odds of one man being able to fulfill them all go beyond the odds that math and statistics consider to be possible. There is a ratio, one in one with a certain number of zeros, where statistically it is considered by science to be defined as impossible odds. Impossible. And when you look at all of the over 300 prophecies about Jesus' incarnation, coming to the earth as a man, where he would be born, how he would die, the things he would do, the family he would come from, it is impossible, according to science, that one man could fulfill all of those things, and yet Jesus did. In fact, the only scientific explanation for Jesus fulfilling all of those things is that the information, the prophecies, came from a different point in time, from outside of time, from someone or something who had foreknowledge of exactly how things were going to happen. And if you find that laughable, I dare you to look at the facts for yourself. I dare you. This is science and math. Look into the prophecies, look into the statistics, run the numbers. This is so important because the Bible can be proven to be scientifically true. The only explanation for Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies is that the prophecies came from a source that exists outside 
of time. Prophecy proves that the Bible is true. And as we've been learning in our men's study, we have the Septuagint, which was the first translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures into Greek. The Septuagint was finished in 270 BC, around that time, more than 200 years before Jesus was born. And we have actual copies from that time of the Septuagint. Here's why that's significant. These 300 prophecies about Jesus, we have them written down, original copies, from more than 200 years before he was born. So this is not that someone went back and changed the prophecies and forged the scriptures to make it look like he fulfilled them. We have the original copies from more than 200 years before Jesus lived and walked on the earth. It's verifiable. The scriptures are absolutely provable as coming from a supernatural source. And the very first message we ever taught in this series on the life of Jesus looks at some of those prophecies in stunning detail. And if you haven't heard it, go onto the website and listen to it. It's called Jesus in Predictive Prophecy and it'll blow your mind. All things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Incredible, incredible. We're also told in Luke's account this about the disciples, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. The disciples didn't. The disciples couldn't get it yet. And yet here's what's so interesting. Jesus still told it to them. He still told them the truth. Why? Well, because later on they would remember, and they would marvel over the fact that Oh my goodness, he predicted it exactly as it would happen. And they would record Jesus' words in the Gospels we're reading today. Parents, grandparents, listen to me. Preach the truth. Preach the word to your kids even when they don't get it. Even when you know it's going over their heads. Seems like it's going in one ear and out the other. There's a promise from God that his word will not return void and the way things play out in the future will prove his word to be true even if they don't get it now they're going to get it later your time and energy will not have been in vain the word of God going into a person is like a time bomb it might seem like nothing's happening for days weeks months years but it's still in there it's still in there and one day something is going to happen in that person's life that is going to open their eyes to the truth that the word of God is true. You remember the process when you were a kid or you were a teenager and you thought your parents were idiots and didn't know anything? And then you started actually growing up and you're like, wait a minute. There's a pattern emerging here. They knew what they were talking about. My goodness, life would have been a lot easier if I had paid more attention to some of the counsel they had given me. That's what happens with the word of God in a person's life. They might go, oh, that's not for me, it's not for me, but it's still in there. And one day, the bottom's gonna fall out, something's gonna happen, something traumatic, and they're gonna go, wait a minute. I heard about this. This is what the Lord said would happen. Oh my goodness, his word is true, and boom! These Bible bombs begin to go off. Preach the truth to your kids, even when they don't get it. When you read all that Jesus says in this statement about his coming death and resurrection, you'll notice this rhythmic use of the word and, this sort of cadence. He says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem 
and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. That's all one sentence, but there's another and coming. However, this and is so big that it needed its own sentence. It's moved into its own sentence. What does it say? It says, and the third day he will rise again. He'll rise again. Listen, don't ever forget that the very last and of the worst situation you will ever find yourself in in this life is and I'll go to heaven. That is the last and in the very worst situation you'll ever find yourself in in life. And I'll go to heaven. Praise God for our final and. You might be thinking, oh, I gotta get a job or things are gonna get really bad. And? Then I won't have any money. And? I won't be able to live in a house. And? Then I'll be on the street. And? I'll get beaten up and stabbed. And? I'll die. And? I'll go to heaven. Right. Right. The last end is really, 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 really good and really, really, really important. But you know, there's stuff that comes even before that. Where the Lord says, and I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. The very last end of your life and my life, no matter what happens in this life, is and I'll go to heaven. I'll go to heaven. And that's what Jesus is trying to convey here as he's trying to help his disciples understand, listen, you should be so fired up and excited about the fact you belong to Jesus. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a reason to praise. There's a reason to be thankful every single moment of every single day. We belong to God. We're going to spend eternity in heaven. Praise God for that. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. It's on your outlines. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to our worthiness, according to our good deeds, according to how much better we are than normal people? No. According to, underline this, the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. You see, ultimately we're saved by one thing, the goodness of God the goodness of God, so that we would look upon him and praise him because his grace is glorious. And I hope that as we get ready to pray and worship and take communion in a few minutes, I hope that you're in a place this morning where you desire to just praise him for the glory of his grace. To not say, well, I got a praise meter and today I'm only on about a five because things in my life are only about a five. I hope that this morning as we pray, as we take communion, as we worship, that we will say, man, I belong to God. He's with me. I'll spend eternity with him. Reason enough for me.
reason enough for me to praise him today. The way God has blessed you and I is not fair. It's not fair. We didn't get what we deserved. Thank God for that. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Titus 3 we read, For we ourselves, yes, you're included in this, were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when we sorted ourselves out, no. But when we figured out how to be good people, no, 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 no. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what I know. It is always a good day to pause, take communion, take some time out of my life to fellowship with the Lord and say, Father, thank you that you're not fair. Thank you for being so good to me even though there's nothing I've done to deserve it. Thank you for loving me despite me and bringing me into your family. Thank you for opening heaven to me despite all my best efforts to make that impossible. And as you and I do that, let me tell you what's gonna happen. We will find that our discontent about circumstances in our life our jealousy over how other people's lives are going and our covetousness, our want of what other people have, will begin to fade away and be replaced by gratitude, which leads to joy and to peace as we simply meditate on the glorious truth that God has been so good to you and I. He's been so good to you and I. Grace is not fair. It's not fair. Thank God for that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, for all of us today, may we just begin by just saying thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you that despite our best efforts to reject you, to not respond to you, you overpowered the grip of sin and death in our lives. You made a way for us to be called to belong to you. We're so thankful for that, God. So Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that you would fill us afresh this morning with the joy of our salvation, with joy over the fact that we belong to you. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of every person who feels their life is mundane and not extraordinary. Lord, would you open their eyes to see the way you have placed them exactly where they are because you have purpose and things for them to do, ministry for them to do. You have a need of them in the place that you have placed them because you put them there on purpose so that you could be represented through them in that place, in those relationships. There is nothing ordinary about the calling you have placed on any one of us, God. Help us to recognize that and live it out as the high calling that it truly is. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, we just release any sense of jealousy that may exist towards another person's calling, another person's walk. Father, in the name of Jesus, forgive us for any moments that we have compared ourselves to others rather than concerning ourselves with you and who you designed us to be and what you put us here to do. Father, may we be so full of gratitude over our salvation that there's no room for jealousy, no room for comparison. Thank you that you're never done with us. You're simply looking for people who will say, use me, God. Is there a place for me? And we know there always is. Father, restore unto us the joy of our salvation this morning. May we worship in gratitude, Jesus. Just keep your focus on the Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you this morning. That's what this time is for. But I want to encourage you as we begin to enter this time of prayer and worship, just make this about being thankful for your salvation. Just don't even think about any other situation in your life. Don't even think about any need you have. Jesus said your heavenly Father knows what you have need of before you even ask. So take this time to just bless God for your salvation. He'll put your life back in balance, I promise. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.